Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Michael Schraga is a research fellow with MIT Sloan School's initiative on the digital economy. His research, writing, and advisory work focuses on the behavioral economics of models, prototypes, and metrics as strategic resources for managing innovation risk and opportunity. He's the author of several award-winning books, including The Innovator's Hypothesis, What Do You Want Your Customers to Become, and Serious Play. His most recent MIT press book, Recommendation Engines, was published in the fall of 2020 as part of its Essential Knowledge series. He runs workshops and executive education programs on innovation, experimentation, and strategic measurement for global organizations. He's doing pioneering work in a number of areas, including selvesware, which is a technological term that he coined. He's looking at multiple selves, the interplay of humans and machines, of network effects and innovation, and the future of KPIs, digital performance management dashboards, and machine learning. In this wide-ranging dialogue, Michael talks about how human-machine collaboration may evolve. He talks about why we should not be asking what customer do we serve or even what problems do we want to solve for that customer, but a more important question is who do we want our customers to become? And he offers a powerful, simple approach to activating greater innovation and experimentation throughout your organization. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Schraga. Michael, thank you so much for being here with us. It's great to have you. My pleasure. So I start my interviews with the same question of everyone, two same questions of everyone. The first is, just to get to know you personally, if you could complete the sentence for me, if you really know me, you know that. I like to laugh. Uh-huh. Great. Love it. And when did you realize you like to laugh? I grew up in Hyde Park in Chicago. My parents were not particularly funny, but they had a good sense of humor. I grew up listening to Tom Lehrer. I got to go to Second City as a child. I loved improvisational humor. I loved the spontaneity. I loved the uncertainty. I loved the unpredictability aspect of it. I liked laughing. I mean, I was a fairly serious child and I grew up in a fairly serious neighborhood. So laughing served a double purpose. It was a sort of relief, but it was also a different way of looking at things. It was a different way of juxtaposing novelty in ways that provoked amusement and curiosity. That's the long-winded version of that short question. Love it. And Second City, that's the school that a lot of Saturday Night Live performers came from, if I'm thinking right. Oh, yeah. Upright Citizens Brigade, the Groundlings in LA. I'd love to dig in more, but let's shift to strategy. Again, I ask this question of everyone and never get the same answer. What is your definition of strategy? Strategy, I'm going to do a flip on Herb Simon's definition of design, which is the ordering of intention. For me, strategy is about aligning capabilities to desired and desirable outcomes. The orchestration of capabilities to achieve and attain desired and desirable outcomes. Now, we can talk about over the length of time, etc., but I'm offering you a time independent of that. Got it. I love that. 
one thing I love about your work is just how diverse it is. And the common thread maybe is just improvisation. I don't know what it is, but each of them we could spend a lot of time on. So I'm going to pepper with a few different topics, but we can go where you want to go. The first thing I'd like to unpack for us a little bit, I use this a lot of my speeches. People just love this. What's a 5-5 experiment? Ah, that's interesting and not irrelevantly or incidentally, it does tie into the improvisational aspect of things. The five by five experiment format framework give five people five days to come up with a portfolio of five experiments that can be run in under five weeks that cost less than $5,000. It's not because I have some sort of secret fetish for the number five. It's what does it mean to design an experiment within constraints? Why did I do the five by five? Because I would work with very large organizations that ostensibly had enormous resources and, forgive me, squandered slash wasted millions of dollars doing pilots and retaining consultants and advisors. And when you just dug a little deeply in them, they really haven't thought through hypotheses, etc. And when I proposed things to them, I said, well, it'll take too long. It'll cost too much. And so what I wanted to do was come up with a methodology, a framework, an approach that could give people an actionable insight in a fraction of a time with a fraction of the cost. And so the whole notion of a five by five was design within constraints. When you work with an organization that wants to be quote-unquote innovative or do something different, you propose something and what do they say four out of five or nine out of ten times? They say, we can't do that because it's the nature of resistance. We can't do that because the lawyers say this. We can't do that because it'll take too long. It's too expensive. Compliance, blah, 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 blah. I wanted to come up with a methodology that allowed us to do fast, simple, cheap, scalable experiments to address and overcome the sources of resistance. So my serious academic background is economics and computer science. I'm very interested in, you know, what does cost effective mean and what is the real virtue of digital technologies? Digital technologies dramatically reduce computational costs. They dramatically reduce transaction and coordination costs. So this mashup, this marriage of digital media, digital platforms, and rapid experimentation, my view was, yeah, 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 you're still going to do the analysis, but designing digital experiments, lightweight, high-impact digital experiments within constraints, that's going to give you big impact. Lightweight, big impact. Sorry for being long-winded on this, but that was the key insight there. Yes, Yes. There's so many implications for what you said about digital, reducing transaction coordination costs and the implications of that. Something that I read that you talked about, this is a little bit not exactly there, but one strategy officer I was talking to just last week, he said, here's what we're trying to do. Focus on the 20% of customers that are going to give us 80% of the revenue. Focus on the 20% of products that can give us 80% of what they buy. And the 20% of suppliers that give us 80% of what we need to supply. If we can focus on that, we could really change the business. Now you look at AI and and predictability, how does that change that 80-20 strategy? I want to double down on what your CSO was saying to you, because basically what they were talking about was a Pareto portfolio. 
the 20% of the products that generate the 80% of the revenues or 80% of the margins, the 20% of the customers that generate 80% of the profits. To what extent do they overlap? To what extent do they intersect? To what extent do they run in parallel? Well, those are all analytical questions that you could use all manner of machine learning algorithms from reinforcement learning to supervised learning to unsupervised learning to identify. But here's where you get the real breakthroughs. And no, I am not a quasi-reductionist. But when you're talking about what 20% of the products generate 80% of the revenues and margins, perhaps the question you really want to ask is, what 20% of the use cases into which those products are applied generate 80% of the value? Are there particular experiences or attributes or features or functionality or, forgive the mathematical reference, Shapley value coalitions that contribute the bulk of that? So my pushback to your CSO is I think thinking in Pareto terms is exactly the right way to begin, but it's just the beginning. I think there are too many people who do those analytics. And then what do they do? They double down on those products. They come up with a new and improved version, or they do a better job of identifying the 80-20 within the 80-20 or super customers. That's okay. But let's not forget something. Product market fit is just a moment in time. If I'm a chief strategy officer, I've got to be concerned with more than just a moment in time. I've got to be concerned about the trajectory I want to be on. And forgive the calculus reference, but who do I want my customer to be at this point when I take the derivative of the product, when I take the second derivative and see how quickly we're innovating with our customers, for our customers, with our suppliers, for our suppliers, in collaboration with our suppliers, or decide, you know, we need a different kind of supplier. We need to have a different kind of user or customer experience. Or, gee, if you put these two use cases together, you may actually transform the way our best customers in a B2B environment collaborate. That's huge. And that, to me, will go right back to the beginning. That's how you orchestrate capabilities to rethink what desired and desirable outcomes should be. So I know you wrote an entire book on this idea of focusing on what your customer becomes or helping your customer. Can you just explain that to me? What do you mean by what your customer becomes? It's funny because you asked me earlier about digital experimentation. Now I'll tell you a true, not embarrassing story, which is I was writing this book on experimentation. But you know, one of the most important things I learned, and this actually ironically ties into comedy, is never confuse means and ends. If the setup doesn't help the punchline, what's the point? There are trade-offs here. Don't confuse means and ends. There's so many organizations I work with that want to improve digital transformation. But the purpose of digital transformation is not to become digitally transformed. It's to be able to provide better value for and with customers. It's to improve customer lifetime value. It's to improve the employee experience. Digital transformation isn't a goal. It's a means to an end. Here was my problem. I'm writing a book on experimentation. Experimentation. The goal is not to become a better experimenter. We're not at MIT or Stanford, you know, doing our postdoc stuff. Experimentation is a means to an end. In science, experimentation is a search for truth. Science is a search for truth. In business, it's a search for value. You're experimenting for value discovery. And so I realized, gosh, I really shouldn't be writing a book on means unless I have greater clarity around what the ends are. 
What's the ends in the business? For me, not a better product, not a better service. I look at products and services as means to an end. What's the end? Customer, customer value. Who do I want my customers to become? Now, I do the backcasting thing. Gee, did Sam Walton know who he wanted his customers to become? Yes, everyday low shoppers around the best branded goods. Did Martha Stewart know who she wanted her customers to become? Yes, better living, high-end, with enough DIY that you feel empowered. Not like, forgive my vulgar language, a bitch to a luxury brand. Did Larry and Sergey know who they wanted their Google customers to? Searchers. Does Jeff Bezos know who he wants his customers? Yeah, yeah. You look at the great visionary entrepreneurs, they can tell you what business they're in, but they can also tell you who they want their customers to become. Got it. Okay. I may not have the right connection here, but you also talk about, we have multiple selves, right? We have like, when I search on Amazon, sometimes I'm a father on the beach and there's a book I want to read. Sometimes I'm a podcaster, there's a book I want to read. We have multiple selves. And so talk to me about that. You completely get it because we'll go back to Walmart. My wife has been involved in marketing and advertising. And of course, the Walmart persona, although everybody shops at Walmart and at Amazon, the Walmart persona was the soccer mom shopper mom. It's mom. You're marketing to mom. It's a persona. That was the thing that became interesting to me, which is customer lifetime value. Who do you want your customers to become? But then you realize that can be a fairly narrow aperture. People are complex. There are many aspects to ourselves. So let me give you an example of why I was galvanized by this frankly obvious notion. So I write a book on recommender systems, recommendation engines for MIT Press. And you're looking at recommendation engines transformative, Amazon, Spotify, TikTok, Facebook, Google. Gmail. I mean, one of the flux points in the 21st century is that many people look to their phones for good advice and recommendations, not through a phone call with a friend, but through a recommendation engine and vice versa. They get advice from a friend and they plug it in and see what the reviews are, or they come up with something and they see if any of their friends know it. So the whole notion of advice is of interest. Now, there's a catch. Forgive the mathematical phraseology. What does the recommender recommend to? Sort of like the centroid, the average self. Okay. So as you might guess, I read a lot of books. I read a lot. I find a bunch of people interesting and I'm getting the average for me, the centroid recommendation for music, from Spotify, for books, from Amazon, for academic articles, research gate, blah, blah, blah. What's the serious point? I want a recommendation engine that gives me recommendations for the curious Michael. Well, the Michael that wants to learn about something that he knows very little about. So it has to be accessible to Michael. So it's not just a search to the average Michael. It's a recommendation to an aspect and an attribute that Michael seeks to emphasize. And in that particular case, that might be the opposite of what it knows you've already read. Exactly. And that is why the issue of multiple selves is so intriguing to me, because we may want to service somebody in their day-to-day use case, but that person may have a vision of themselves. 
I mean, imagine what LinkedIn could do providing job recommendations for a future self. I'm in academe, but what I really want to do is become an entrepreneur. What suggestions for links and connections should be made if what I really want to do is not get tenure at a top 20 research university, but I want to be the CTO at a startup that has a sustainability or environmental emphasis? Yeah, can I do searches? Sure, I can do all that. But why not a recommender? Why not use AI and machine learning, all of this data and the history of my choice to make more bespoke targeted recommendations to that aspect of my future self? So let's take that recommender. It's your phone or it's your Google or Lex or whatever. That thing starts getting really smart. Well, first of all, do people follow algorithmic recommendations? And what happens when the algorithm becomes smarter than us? Ah, okay. You have put your finger on what I think is one of the most important issues, forgive me for sounding grandiose, one of the most important issues facing humanity. I'm an Uber driver. I'm an Amazon, you know, am I a slave to my algorithm? Lyft or Uber algorithm that says, turn left, turn right, here's the map, you go this way. Where do I have agency? And that's why, you know, I mentioned my background is economics and computer science. The aspect of economics that I'm most interested in is behavioral economics, Kahneman, Tversky, Sunstein and Thaler. By the way, Kahneman and Thaler are Nobel laureate economists, choice architectures. How do we get recommendations not as orders to follow, but as options to explore and exercise? I like choice. I find choice, if they're good choices, empowering, not constraining or frustrating. And that's where it becomes a combination of art and science. So let me just give you a practical use case. And full disclosure, I've had this conversation with Amazon. We know that Alexa is going somewhere when you come in from work one day and you say, Alexa, play me a sad song. And Alexa says, how sad. And you say, very sad. And Alexa plays the song and you feel your eyes well up with tears. We can do that with happy song. Alexa, who should I talk with to cheer me up? And it gives me two or three names. Now, serious question. Is that invasive? Is that surveillance? Is that too much? But now we're getting to the notion of multiple so because here's what you want. What are the qualities of a good recommender? Novelty, diversity, comprehensiveness, serendipity. Alexa, who should I talk with? And they give the name of somebody I haven't spoken with in five years, but wow, I'm surprised. But now that I think about it, that's not a bad idea, even if I don't call. So now you see the convergence of who do you want your customers to become and multiple selves. In my view, Andrew Jassy is, I know this is your podcast, forgive me, batshit crazy (laughs) if he doesn't want Alexa users to ask the kind of questions we've discussed. I'm sorry. I know we're reaching the top of our time with you, but I wouldn't be doing the listeners justice if I didn't ask you to then talk about then, if we have these multiple selves and we're interacting with these machines, do these machines then help us become better selves? That's why I only was saying partly tongue-in-cheek. This is one of those future of humanity questions. To what extent does becoming a better self become contingent and dependent upon the quality of our devices. 
do we want our mobile phones? Do we want our augmented reality glasses or AirPods to send a signal, whisper in our ear, you're talking too much, be quiet, or now's a good time to speak up? To what extent is the future of a better self a function of our relationship with our technology? Right now, you can walk down any street in any city in almost any country in the world, and you will see people all looking at the same thing, their phone. I don't think that's sustainable. I think there's an opportunity for using technology to facilitate and prompt people to become a better version of their self and better attributes of their self. And I will say this in both a B2B and B2C sense. To me, the future of the self, the future of your customer, the future of your client as an individual, as a team, as an enterprise, that to me is the core strategic question. That's what a CSO needs to focus on. What kind of selves do our innovations, our products, our services, our user experiences, our customer experiences, our client experience facilitate, enable, and empower? I love it. Oh, great. So you brought us back to the beginning. Again, I've got so many questions, but I think that's a great place to conclude. What are you working on now? And what can our listeners do to learn from you and follow you? You know, I sort of minimize my exposure and surface area on social media because it's not my thing. I do write, I do publish, I participate in podcasts, I teach, I do research. There are podcasts, there are videos, there are interviews. Yeah, so we'll just look for you out there. There are a lot of ways. What I'm really working on now is like a double helix of the future of the self and agency, the issues that we've spent time discussing, and I've much enjoyed that discussion, but also the issue of how do we measure, how do we know the future of key performance indicators. We talk about customer lifetime value. What's real value there? I want to deconstruct and reconstruct the elements and attributes of the metrics that matter for determining these things. As I am not a quant, but the more I look at the challenge of aligning qualitative insight and quantitative measure, the more I believe there's a long way to go. I'm not trying to turn people into physics, but I really believe that not the quantified self, but rethinking the purpose and how measurement can enable people to become better selves. I think that's a big deal. And I'm pretty happy with my preliminary work, but it's still preliminary. Wow. We can't wait for you to explore that further and package it for us in the way that you do that helps us understand it. So thank you for the work that you do and for taking some time to share it with us. Michael, it's great seeing you. All the best. I look forward to the next time. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers. Outthinkers.